Hello and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson and I'm here with my co-host Dan Torres. How hey, you Dan? Hey Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great because we have a, an environmental organizer that I admire very much on the show today. Her name is Lorene Allen. She's the founder of the Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, and she's been helping her community organize around PFAS contamination. And PFAS, if you haven't heard about it, is a class of toxic man-made chemicals that have been used in a lot of things, like waterproof clothing or firefighting foam, even dental floss. And somehow PFAS has gone into the water supply in Merrimack. So, Lorene, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So, I guess my first question is, how did PFAS get in the water in your town? Oh my gosh, where to begin in this story? So, we learned in March of 2016 that our water tested positive above the then EPA um, health advisories, which were non-binding and non-enforceable, but nonetheless health advisories for something called PFOA. So PFOA is one compound in the class of PFAS, which is the whole chemical class. And basically it's what they use in Teflon coating. And this was troubling because here in Merrimack, New Hampshire, you know, lots of conservation land, a very beautiful area, and our water is primarily groundwater. And everyone was under the assumption that it was really safe and it won the best tasting water in New Hampshire award for many, many years. So we learned that there's a corporation here in town called St. Cobain Performance Plastics. They primarily do, they do a lot of DOD contracts and they are involved in Teflon coating. So they use something called PTFE, which is basically fabric coating. And they coat things and they dip them in and they roll them up these big rollers and they go up into these big stacks where ovens heat this and basically bake it onto this light fiberglass type cloth. This is the type of stuff you see in firefighting gear, wild, wildfire gear, those big round white balls you see when you're driving around that are satellite covers, the Millennial Dome in London. So those are a sense of that type of fabric, just so you can connect that. Anything that's oil resistant and water resistant is most likely full of PFAS at this point. Uh, some places are pivoting to newer technology, which, by the way, is out there. So my first thought was, you know, I came of age in the 70s. I remember, you know, clean up in Massachusetts where I grew up of, of waterways, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. And I was under the assumption that there were laws to prevent this type of thing from happening. Lo and behold, this particular chemical class has evaded laws and regulations for more than 20 years. So this has been going on here since at least 2003, when they acquired um, a company called ChemFab that did basically the same thing from 85, 87 on. So, you know, here we are learning about this in 2016, and we've already had years of exposure to a chemical class that I learned does not break down. It's in our environment for at least 100 miles, is what New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services tells us. It's here to stay. It gets into your body, it gets into your serum, it gets into your organs, it doesn't excrete, and plain and simple, it's bad news. Now when we look at the national map, you know, we're seeing this everywhere. Where you test for it, they'll find it. So that was the very beginning of learning about this, and that was March of 2016, and here it is, 2023. Um, tell me about the day that you found out that your water was contaminated and then maybe tell 
us about that first community meeting. Well, you know, I'm a clinical social worker and I deal with complex family and I deal with a lot of stuff for more than 25 years. So I think my listening and observational skills are probably pretty heightened. So what really caught my ear at that point is the corporation was allowed to control the messaging. They basically told the media, oh, in a routine tap test, we informed the state that we'd found 30 parts per trillion of PFOA and they stuck it to PFOA. You know, there's more than PFOA in this water. There's a slew of these. It's a whole PFAS cocktail. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, we have a non-binding federal health advisory, which I knew nothing about till I started looking at this, of 100. Why are they reporting 30 parts? Now, to me, I just knew instinctively this was bad news and no amount was safe. And there were other like-minded people around. So the fact that they were allowed to break the news to the media, really, my, my brain was kind of intrigued by that. Shortly thereafter, there was an information meeting in my town because everybody had questions and needed to know what was going on. So the state held this meeting, Department of Environmental Services, Department of Health and Human Services, and packed huge room, you know, the whole gym, the high school, which is a sizable place, and all ages showed up. And I'm looking and I'm saying, wow, there are people here in New England, in New Hampshire, who are, you know, they're diehards. They're kind of like, yeah, every, yeah, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, we have a lot of that thinking in, in areas of New England. And people, what I observed, were worried and concerned. And this was being minimized. I felt it was being, the harm was being denied. We kept hearing the phrase, well, these are emerging chemicals. We don't really know much about them. They put up these slides that really were very vague and something wasn't feeling right to me. And then came the questions from the public. Person after person get up and go to this microphone of all ages. And there's these, you know, older New Englanders who don't talk about their health. They don't talk about personal stuff. They are disclosing story after story after story of who died in their household, what's happened in their neighborhood. And they're visibly rattled. And these are stoic New Englanders for the most part. Not all, but those are the ones that really captured my interest. And I thought, what's going on here? I'm hearing a pattern and they're hearing, oh, we don't really know. We can't really say. We can't, you know, it was just nobody's even saying like, whoa, I'm really sorry. Or, you know, well, we're going to look into this. We're going to support your health. That we didn't hear. We didn't hear at all. So I'm hearing things and patterns that I'm saying, this isn't right. And it wasn't just one health condition that we know were associated with PFAS. So while I'm listening to this, I'm Googling for health associations and I'm finding slews of research under the National Institute for Health and National Institute for Toxicology. And I'm finding so much information while I'm hearing live time, we really don't know, there's no information. Then I look at the slides and I say to myself, there's a little logo on the bottom corner there and it doesn't look like the state of New Hampshire logo. What is that logo? I said, oh, I'll check it out. About a week later, I went online and I looked at those slides and I pulled up the video and I blew it up. By then, I had researched enough to know 3M and DuPont were the original manufacturers. I had learned an awful lot in a week. The logo on that original set of slides that's presented to us in you know, the corny phrases or hour of need, <laughs> that really is what it was, was the 3M logo. I was stunned and I thought, 3M gave you the slides? No wonder they're so 
you know, greenwashed, whitewashed, whatever we want to call it, real minimization and no connection between exposure and outcome anywhere at all. And I know the state can't say, yeah, the water probably caused all that in your family. Of course they can't. But it was really my first, you know, personal experience of the power of the American Chemistry Council, the power of corporate America. It was stunning. I think of it now looking back is this real almost this lock on target mode that I didn't even really know I had in me where I started saying, that's it. I am going to find out everything about this and I'm going to connect the dots and I am going to expose you and I'm going to educate people or local officials. You know, if you're in a town council in a town like Merrimack, this isn't your level of expertise. You're going to turn to the state and what the state tells you, you're going to take as pretty much a given. So the information was far from complete. And the protector, you know, the, the polluter was calling the shots and they still are in the investigation. That's the basic gist of the entry. Then, of course, there were like-minded people who were regulars at different meetings who were speaking up on social media. I, I joined, you know, Facebook community groups to kind of reach out and connect with people in that way, because that's the way people connect these days. And by January of 2017 said, you know what, we need to organize in a more effective way than going to meetings, signing petitions. You can't just hold up signs. This is complex, local, state, federal, all of it needs to change. Lorraine, I, I had a question for you, uh, Dan. Um, when you went to that meeting initially where people were telling you about what was in the water, but they said it's a bunch of chemicals and we don't know, was I'm assuming that that was state officials, city officials. Yes. Were there corporate officials there too for from the companies yes. that polluted that there too? Was. Were they all together? Okay. Our person at that point, uh, she moved on, named like Dina Pokoloff, I believe her name was, and she gave out a card to a couple people and she was the... Uh, spokesperson from St. Cobain. So, and there was a, another person or two who were kind of there observing that I'm like, who is that person? They didn't say anything. They sat in the back of the room, mm. but they gave a card to uh, someone. And I don't know, I think it was an elected official. They weren't giving the cards out to regular people. And they were kind of schmoozing with the uh, town and other people to try to, they use phrases in their media releases about, you know, environmental stewards and good neighbors and all that language that just makes you want to just ugh. while you're denying responsibility and you're minimizing and you're controlling the area and the scope of the investigation because simply any corporation not just this one part of their maybe it's their responsibility to stake you know shareholders is uh-oh we have liability here we need to contain it mm. and that comes before people and that becomes you know community come on good neighbors and environmental stewards Going back to the research that you mentioned, um, what are some of the health impacts of PFAS and what were some of the ailments that people at that meeting were sharing? Well, while we were, what I was hearing is people, uh, one man went up and talked about his prostate cancer and kidney cancer. A woman said she had kidney cancer twice, uh, lymphoma. People talked about, uh, there was someone who said there was a 13-year-old uh, son in their family who had his thyroid partially removed. There was a teen who stood up who talked about their thyroid reproductive health issues that, so what the, the response was of people was, it wasn't one health condition at a time. It was this pattern in their families that I think my take on this was between them and their specialists, everybody had said, why did this happen? We have a good enough lifestyle. We don't have family history. 
one woman talked about two biological children and two adopted children, and she talked about her street, the anomaly cases of autism, thyroid, endocrine disruptions, autoimmune, and younger people. And she was very well-spoken. She's now a state rep and a staff, town council, and I love her dearly. Her name is Nancy Murphy. Yay. And so she spoke up because she said, something's not right here. So what caught my eye is, okay, people are talking about this spectrum of disorders and you can't say all of this is caused by water, but there were, there were patterns there with thyroid and autoimmune and things like that. So as I was Googling, while they're saying there's no research, we really have no information on this, I immediately find this thing called the C8 study that was done in 98, 2000, somewhere around there, the DuPont paid for, you know, with we know the dark waters and devil, you know, stories there, it's all on there. And there's a list of conditions that they acknowledge were strongly associated or state at a later time did acknowledge those things. And they were, you know, cholesterol, you know, liver and kidney impacts, reproductive health disruptions, various things. There's about eight health conditions, seven or eight that were acknowledged by DuPont 23 years ago. And I'm like, all right, so what happens with these disorders? Like if you look at something like cholesterol, right, that can come from lifestyle. And that can come from so many reasons, genetics, you know, many, many things. So if you learn about the chemistry of these chemicals and learn how they react with lipids, then you say, whoa, this is not good because it isn't just cholesterol that causes blockage, that causes cardiovascular disease. You see cardiovascular disease in here of cardiomyopathy, AFib, electrical activity, you know, we have 20 seven times the expected cardiovascular disease in this community, for example. And that's been, you know, um, University of Vermont worked with me on compiling some health data that we, we gathered ourselves. And, you know, all these things are progressive. You see children, we see reproductive health disruptions and neurological and everything. Everything is there in the research, but for an exposed community, there's a progression, you know, with long-term exposure. There isn't just one health condition and you say, oh, could it be the water? There's these patterns with males, with females. I see it in certain age groups. And I've, I've come to see these profiles. People sometimes come into my office, you know, for stress reasons as a, as a therapist, I'm a couple towns away. And I hear now profiles and I think, do you have a private well? What town do you live in? Have you had your water tested? And I add that to my intake at this point for psychological, you know, support. So it's, it's immense. It's, it's just immense. All right. Thank you for that, Lorraine. And when we come back, I will ask about how a citizens group has started to tackle this immense problem. You're listening to Panorama. We are speaking with Lorraine Allen of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, and we'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Lorraine Allen. She's the founder of the Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, an organization up in Merrimack, New Hampshire, that is fighting against some PFAS contamination from a local manufacturer called St. Gobain. And St. Gobain is a really big multinational corporation. They have multiple factories in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. So how did this citizens organization of New Hampshire residents even start to try to tackle a problem this big when they were trying to minimize it? Well, what we learned is in their own research is that Usyk Falls, New York in Bennington, Vermont had St. Gobain right there responsible 
identified by their states is the same thing, the same contamination, groundwater, well water, very similar. And it was handled very differently in those states. So um, the first discovery was maybe in, so 2015, this was all happening. And then I look it up and I realize, oh, this is the same management team and the same practices. Not all their facilities do Teflon coating of fabrics and wires in film coating. They do ceramics, they do all kinds of stuff. So hopefully they're behaving themselves there, but uh, I don't think so. I, I've learned that they are very deceitful and profits come first. They don't really care about the earth. They are not good neighbors and environmental stewards. So in those towns, I started reaching out to people to get a sense for what was going on in their investigation and what they were doing and presenting that to New Hampshire. So by the beginning of 2017, you know, people were riled up, they were emotional and they were frustrated. Some were like moving away. They're like, well, what are you going to do? Nothing we're doing is making a difference here. So at that point, we were our own experts. We just didn't know it. We also knew, and what I mean by that is we know what we need. And every community facing something like this instinctively knows what they need. You need physician guidance. You need health support. You need primarily the source to be stopped. Everybody in town wanted them shut down. Can't do it. They have more rights than we do. And they're designated, an EPA designated contamination site of at least 100 miles. It goes further than that. We all know that. And this stuff keeps traveling. And yet, they're, they're doing whatever they want, right? So it didn't make any sense. Then we had this issue about health advisories. So by May of 2016, the federal government had lowered their advisory of 100 parts to 70 parts. So our town and our water department, well-meaning people, people were calling older people. I don't know if my water is impacted because the media was telling everybody that, oh, it's only a small amount of private wells in Merrimack. It's more private wells in Litchfield and it's two of your public water wells and they shut them immediately. Well, A, the exposure has happened and B, no, it's all six of our public wells in all of our private wells. The whole town is contaminated. So now there's this debate going on on social media and within town of how much is safe. I mean, that's ridiculous, toxic chemicals. You know, what they said at the time is one drop in an Olympic size swimming pool, that's 70 parts. The EPA now in the last year is acknowledging there's no safe level for PFOA and PFOS. They're carcinogens. They are uh, bad news. So everybody is, some people are debating over how much is enough. They're in denial. And other people are saying, this is horrible. We need to do something about this, but what to do? So me being me, I looked around and I said, okay, we need to get information. And the first thing we have to do to build an army is to give people the facts that they're not getting. So I started holding these meetings twice a month at the library um, and people could come in and talking to people on social media, going to town council meetings, bringing them documentation. And my take there, that was all videotaped, was hi, we're forming this citizen group, and I know we all are trying to get their head around this, but I've been to conferences in Boston. I'm connecting with a lot of experts on this, on this area, and I want to be a resource. I want to help our community have the information, and we're forming a group of people who will be those liaisons, and we can get this you know, support for a community. They didn't like it. Don't say the word contamination. It's inflammatory language is one thing that I heard. It was like shut down, shut down, shut down, you know, 
it was it was rough in the beginning. There was a lot of targeting called crazy ladies, fear mongers. And I said, you know, where are the dads? We need to bring in the dads. So we we added mentor groups so they couldn't call us crazy ladies and found some amazing dads who are still very involved, who care very much about their health and their family's health. What a surprise, right? Good dads should be that way. So we ended up you know, educating people. And then by the end of that year, we formed this core leadership team and started meeting around my dining room table a couple of nights a week to really map out what we were gonna do. And we knew we had to have consensus in our community. We had to have what you don't see across the nation, we did it. Our water department, or town council, or town commissions and boards, and the people all together saying, there's a problem here and this is what we need. So we built that. I had coffee after coffee after coffee with people who were in office who were saying, what are you talking about? This isn't a problem. The numbers were under 70. It's fine. It's don't make a big deal of it. Giving them information. Did you know? What do you think about this? So they could go to Concord and you know, better represent us. There was a lot of games going up there. I learned that the lobby industry has a lot of power. <laughs> and, and that sounds, now I laugh and I say, well, yeah, but I, I was stunned in the beginning and I was looking at who was testifying against bills that we were getting sponsored in Concord and what the ass were and the chumminess with the governor's office and the AG and a uh, huge difference between New Hampshire in Vermont and New York and how this community was treated. So those are some of the early activities. It was engage, 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 and outreach. And that is, interestingly enough, those are my core from back in the 90s, my social work skills, community engagement, let's, let's do this. So we really did build this from the ground up and empowered people who, who could speak intelligently, who could go to meetings and not just say, you owe this to us, we hate St. Cobain, shut them down. You can say that if you want to, I'd say to people, but hey, let's talk about some facts you could add in. Let's talk about documents that you can you can cite yourself. So whatever we say, we can back up undisputably. That was the piece that really, I think, was the most effective and ended up getting results. Did yeah. you coordinate with other residents in New York and in Bennington, Vermont, did you ask them, hey, you need to go file freedom of information requests? Did you ask them to get in touch with other scientists? How did you group them together since you, you weren't living there? Well, initially, we're working on all this stuff locally, right? And then I reach out to the New York folks, and then I find uh, this phenomenal person who's the PFOA New York on Twitter, Lorraine Hackett, and you were like forever sisters. Uh, and she tells me what they've done there and what they're insisting. They got to speak for themselves. They got a seat at the table and New York let them. Here, it went all behind closed doors mm -hmm. after the first year and documents disappeared and we had to get them and request them, but we could. And, and I would, wouldn't take no for an answer. EPA, Office of Research and Development was assisting in the investigation, doing some testing and it wasn't being talked about anywhere. So I'm talking to everybody across the nation everywhere. In the meantime, there was this great conference in Boston, summer of 2017, the first PFAS conference at Northeastern. And I'm in this like working lunch, which was meant to kind of introduce residents who were impacted, who were speaking on panels. And I looked around and at that point I thought, you know, there's some super powerful groups in this nation where people have way too much power. I looked at the 
power we had. And I thought about everybody going back to their small town and community. And that wasn't sitting right with me. We needed to build national power. So at that point, I said, you know, look at who we have in this room. We're all going to leave or what are we going to do? Let's form a national group and let's start lobbying for our mutual needs on the national agenda. So everybody liked that idea and a good friend who's become a good friend of mine from Portsmouth who had dealt with the peas contamination testing for peas founder, Andrew Miko was like, that's great. Let's do this. She came up with the word coalition, you know, cause we're like, well, what are we going to call ourselves? You know? So the national PFAS contamination coalition was born that summer, June of 2017 still exists to this day. And the point there is to, to me, it was to build this national army who could successfully engage with their federal delegations, no small task, and make sure that the federal delegations were as well educated on this issue as they were, because they get their information from lobbyists in corporate America. And you know what, if you didn't know what I know at this point and other people know, you would see some of their presentations and just say, oh, maybe it isn't a problem. They're very good. They're very yeah. smooth. And when you're talking about uh, legislation on the federal level, it, we, we talked about these health advisories, formerly being 170, and I don't think that there is an enforceable standard yet, but from the preliminary information shared, I think it's something around four, yes. four parts per trillion. And that just blows some of the levels that you guys have been seeing in your wells out of the water. Well, yeah, it's you said 30, right? And EPA's yeah. health advisory is 0. 0.0004 parts per trillion. So they measured last June the risk factors for PFOA and PFOS in particular in the quadrillions. And I'm like, what is a quadrillion? It was just mind blowing. The reason that their rulemaking is settled on four parts per trillion is because of testing standards and, and you know, remediation and all that stuff. But their health advisory right now is 0. 0.0004. So that basically says, and they are on record as of June of 2022 saying no amount of PFOA or PFOS is safe. Now we think about that. Do we then say, oh, if you have PFBA and PFBS, well, that's not so bad. Of course not. You don't have to be a chemist to just use your brain and say they're all bad, right? Because they are. It's yeah. the carbon fluorine bond and what they do in your body and your organs. So the health advisory is there. What's really sad right now is before New Hampshire and Massachusetts and I think 17 states we might be up to at this point had MCLs state enforceable rules for water standards for PFAS, only for a few of them, not enough, but we have something. They counted on the health advisories from the federal government. The new health advisories come out, they lay out all the science, they say how they got to those numbers. It's, it's you can't argue with it, it's, it's legit. No one says, oh, we better incorporate the health advisories. They say, well, let's see what they're gonna do for their rulemaking, and if they do it, we will have to, you know, yeah. incorporate that. Thank you for that, Laureen. And, and now's a good point to also mention that PFAS are thousands of different chemicals. And there's been a debate over whether we're going to regulate them by each chemical, like PFBA, PFOA, or if we're going to reg regulate them as a class of chemicals. And that's something being decided by states and by the federal government right now. We have been talking with Lorene Allen. She's the founder of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water and also the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. And we will continue this conversation right after this break. Hello. 
Hello, and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Laureen Allen. She's the founder of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, a citizens group in New Hampshire that is fighting against PFAS contamination, and also the founder of the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. And Laureen, in your work with um, these different citizens group and your activism, what have we learned about the other sources of PFAS across the country? So what we see across the country, and everybody can look up that EWG map, and they update it every couple of years, so they have a working map. Most of those dots across the nation are Department of Defense sites or fire training sites. So the AFFF foam, what they squirted out of those hoses for years, is PFAS, bad news. The firefighting foam. Yes, the firefighting foam, uh, which is more in the PFOS column as opposed to the PFOA is more of the fabric coating and the Teflon and the nonstick and the food wrappers and all that stuff. So we have that, you know, discharges into the ground, into waterways, runoff, airports, eh, bad news. Then we have industry. So my issue with that map is they only can get it if there's an identified site. And there's supposed to be this national law that says you're supposed to have this thing called the toxic release inventory, TRI, and manufacturers are to report certain things. Well, they don't because they claim it's confidential business information is what I found out. Or they claim, um, well, we get this formula that gets sent to us, but it's not individual PFAS. There's all these ridiculous loopholes and exemptions that drive me crazy and I'm all over them federally and on the state level. People hear me say it all the time. So that being said, we are vastly underreporting what's going on from manufacturing facilities who use these chemicals. They're everywhere. People just don't know it. So if we take St. Bain, for example, it's a great example. They sit very close to the Merrimack River. The water contamination was attributed to air emissions. Air emissions go for miles and miles and miles. The whole state of New Hampshire is mapped out as dots. Bennington did a study in Bald Mountain, which is so rural, nothing could have polluted it besides St. Bain and Bennington. So we know air emissions is a pathway. We know that they flushed down floor drains, which got it into the sanitary sewer system. We know that they discharge into waterways and they call it non-contact cooling liquid. Well, it's full of PFAS. It goes into the waterways that used to be protected by the Clean Water Act. And somehow that got finagled with a bit about the definition of waterways. So let's think about that. Now we have soil contamination, right? We have, I thought of this in the beginning, you know, I gardened organically for years. I'm like, oh my God, I watered my vegetables with this water and what's coming down in the ear? What's the state of my soil? So tested it all. It was all there. Okay, fabulous. Then I started thinking back in the end of 2017 about wastewater because this town in the 90s was one of the first state of the art, you know, waste is a problem in this country, right? That statement shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. What are we going to do with all the stuff we make and we trash we produce? But then we have industrial waste. Where does that all go? Are we going to be naive and assume that they do the right thing? You can't destruct PFAS at this point. What are they doing with it? So it changes, it morphs, but it's still PFAS. So I realized there was a man at that first meeting who talked about reporting in the early 2000s about this being poured down the drain at St. Cobain. And I thought, wow, that's gone to our wastewater facility. Our wastewater facility makes compost made of the biosolids from whatever they receive and whatever trucks bring to them in the area that they pump in there. And that has gone out all over New England since the 90s. And I thought to myself, huh, that used to be said, 
don't use this in gardens and other areas, only like golf courses, playing fields, grass. It's great for your yard. And I thought to myself, I never allowed it on my property. I'm like, no way. Uh, something, I don't know what's in there for industrial chemicals. It's not tested enough. My kids and dogs aren't playing on it. So as it turned out, somewhere along the line, I started looking at this issue and I found that our, our sludge which is compost here, was reclassified a number of years ago as class A instead of class B. By now I have this whole new area of knowledge that I never had before and never thought I would on compost. And I thought, class A is food grade. Oh my God, this is horrible. I can't speak to everybody's compost from wastewater facilities, but from here, this is not good. I look to say, has it been tested? Oh, it's all hush, hush, hush. So fast forward to today, right? It's been, I've tested it recently because the town made an ask of St. Cobain uh, three or four years ago that they would do this whole pre-sanitary sewer um, filtration system. So what comes out of their facility is supposed to be, you know, better so they can keep, because they cared about their compost. They cared about what was in it. Uh, the town understands this is a problem. So, and they also have to do something with this. So we worked to get them to do their own permitting, to do testing, and tried to kind of clean that up a bit. So I went and had the compost tested uh, not that long ago, and lo and behold, it's still higher than average, even with those efforts being made. So it's a really problematic area. So land spreading is the, is the phrase, and land spreading is used in agricultural land for decades, and organic farmers in Maine, and all over New England and the country are finding out that their land is contaminated with PFAS, their soil, their wells that they use for irrigation, their crops. And it's a huge problem. And we've only just begun to talk about it. It's massive. Laurie, um, before we take another break here, can you tell us what can consumers do about it, given the ubiquitous nature of, of what you're talking about? Is there... A, a class action lawsuit happening against St. Gopain where a lot of this might be coming out. Is that a fight? And obviously it's not just them, probably. There are probably other companies involved in this. It's just, um, can you touch on that before we take a quick break? Well, the issue here that's the same everywhere is when somebody's caught, they go and work directly with the states, they cut deals and they get consent orders that are highly inadequate. The residents don't have a seat at the table. We don't get to say what we want. So the health and wellness and the healing of the community is never considered in any of this. And the whole comprehensive nature of air, soil, water, and the thoughts that compost being used on farmland. And here's another thing, USGS just did a survey in New Hampshire where they did testing across the state of soil for PFAS. They found it everywhere, but guess what? I looked at their numbers and I had a good presentation with them. The PFAS um, used on agricultural sites in New Hampshire was not included in that study. Mm. And they know it's there at much higher levels. So nobody knows what to do about this problem. So you can't just bury your head in the dirt. Right, you know, right. It talks, yeah. I mean, I, I think about yeah. public disclosure, you know, I think is also a big thing too. It's like the company, this is where the capture by government makes this extremely hard because if the company has documents and it seems like you're maybe just scratching the surface of what's known or what they knew when they knew it and, and back then and the consequences of this are probably pretty, pretty stark. And so I think to, to me, I think it's um, an issue where government 
has to pressure such a company to disclose what happened, what are the worst sites, and and the way I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, what can what can the city or what can the state regulators do once a site is contaminated? Because you know these you said forever chemicals, right? I mean, there's you can mitigate some of these risks, but we see the very human tolls of this, and then we pay it in health insurance rates and healthcare costs Absolutely. in the trillions of dollars the throughout of the country. interaction, as they say, you're right. And every community that's grappling has the costs in many ways, higher water rates, higher remediation rates, bottled water if they're buying that, filtration systems in their home do you, and health costs do you drink, and loss of work. Do you drink water that's specially filtered in, in the area now? Yes. Given that you're, yeah? yes. Okay. And I don't just count on a whole health system before all our wells, bit by bit our wells were all remediated. We did that. 93% of our voters voted to spend millions of dollars to filter all of our wells, oh, wow. even though two of them were out of compliance with the state regulations, not all six. Everyone at that point, 93% of a community voting to spend wow. their own dime. But I tell people, you can't just get a home system. You have to get a reverse osmosis dedicated tap in your right. kitchen $200. Hopefully, you know somebody to put it in. If not, you got to pay the plumber. But guess what? Easy to maintain. Your water will be PFAS free. That is the only thing that will take it all out. And I will never, ever be without one. Wow. You know, I think where I go, what I'm drinking, and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I put a lot of thought into that. I can't have any more exposure. Right. Thank you for that. We have been speaking with Laureen Allen. She's the founder of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water. We're talking about PFAS contamination in her town and how to address it on the community level and beyond. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Panorama, where we are speaking with Laureen Allen. She's the founder of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, which is a town in New Hampshire dealing with PFAS contamination. And Laureen, I want to ask you, as you're dealing with this out in New Hampshire, here in Massachusetts, there are communities kind of coming to terms with PFAS contamination too. And they're organizing and we're thinking of kind of regulatory standards that you've been grappling with. So what advice would you give to people trying to organize their community to address this, this emerging contaminant as it's been so-called? Well, first of all, I want to broaden it out quickly and say it's everyone's problem because you have to know with your Gore-Tex and your food wrappers and all butter wrappers just came out in a mammovation study this week, clothing, you know, that gets absorbed into your skin. It's it's everywhere. So you can you can demand, you know, as a consumer that you do not want this in your products. And they're listening. They're listening. There's been gains there. So I live 20 minutes from the Massachusetts border and water, you know, travels downstream. So the Merrimack River supplies water in Lawrence and the North Shore, so it's everywhere. So I think if you're in a community and you learn suddenly that your water contains chemicals that you don't want in there, you need to find like-minded people, you need to get that information, you need to look up the National PFAS Contamination Coalition online and join us, just fill in the form and we'll be like, great, we have monthly um, info meetings where there's a variety of topics that people find very helpful. You need to join with others for your own um, you know, as a, as a clinical social worker, I'm really tuned into the emotional impacts and the impacts of mental health because the stress of all this is immense. It's not like if this horrible flood happens in your town and, you know, you lose your property and you're devastated and you know why, hopefully FEMA comes in quickly, you know, and you slowly rebuild your life. 
it's not good when things like that happen, disasters and who knows what, but you will rebuild your life. So think about this, forever chemicals, this class of chemicals, how do you rebuild your life when this is home, you love where you live, and it's always going to be there. There's no end to this. You know, the regulatory needs to change. You know, we need to regulate this as a class. They can test for total organic fluorines and do a molecular weight. It's very doable. There's resistance from the people who profit from it. We need polluter accountability. If you look on the National PFAS contamination website, you will see what our specific goals are and they're very attainable and we work on this. I believe in the national approach and the regional approach because what we're doing here, whatever strides we've made are great, but they're not enough. And your water and your safety and your community should not depend on your zip code. This has to be fixed for everyone. We can't leave anyone behind. I think that dealing with the PFAS issue is really going to take rethinking industry, rethinking our waste streams. It's it's kind of like prompting this reckoning with like the way that we live and consume. I don't know if you feel similarly. Yeah, you're talking about the concept of essential use, and that is a major point of some of our platform work, is we can ban non-essential use. And they do put these things in certain medical devices that go in your body, but, you know, wherever they're made, I worry about the people living around those facilities. But when you have something that's a titanium piece in your heart valve or something, I don't believe that that's going to leach into your blood. In that form, what the end product is, is, is appropriate and necessary. So I'm not, it's not realistic to say we totally get rid of them, but we can in so many areas. Uh, they, they have fluorine-free foams. Uh, Canada has a lot of tech, other places in the world have things, but you know, when you're making money off of something in this country, you're not likely going to give that up, right? That's the problem. And you're right. We have to rethink how we live because if we know what we're exposed to, we can make changes and we as consumers have a lot more power than we think from that approach. And can Canada or New Zealand or another country be a model? I mean, have you seen any countries try to tackle PFAS recently that could serve as somewhat of a blueprint for, for what we could do more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they're trying. You know, the EU has put out phenomenal bans and, and Europe is doing a lot of good work on this. But, you know, we have a country where... Quite frankly, you know, I always try to keep this. This isn't about party. We're all equally harmed here, but there's money in politics, right? There's big money in politics. Until we get the money out of politics and truly allow the EPA to act independently, the FDA, where are they on all this, right? We have food. They are silent. They have presented in other nations on studies of PFAS and produce and things, but there's nothing said about it here in the United States. So there's a long way to go. And, you know, I, I will be working on this, I think, both sadly and gladly for the rest of my life, mm. because it's really important. It's the health, the health and welfare of our nation. This is beyond an endocrine disruptor, a neurotoxin, a carcinogen, all of the above. And don't let anybody tell you that artificial turf is safe. <laughs> it's not. And the um, replacements, you know, these polyfluoromers, they're PFAS. <laughs> so... I get so worked up about this issue because there's just too many people who get sick and too many people with cancers with sources that we don't know. There, there's yeah. almost like too many toxins coming from too many directions. I heard a number of years ago from somebody presenting on cancers, a statistic that was sticks with me to this day. 
85% of cancers are environmentally caused or related. 85%. Just think about how healthier we could be. That stunned me to hear that. New Hampshire has the highest rate of pediatric cancer in the nation and Southern New Hampshire, Hillsborough County, where I live, is the biggest county and most populated. That most likely is skewing the data and they will not acknowledge pediatric cancer when they do cancer incident reports and they say it's for reasons of confidentiality. We don't name the names. So, you know, sick kids doesn't look good for a state. I mean, people can research this easily. You can do incident reports properly. They're not doing them quite the right way. It's kind of like somebody behind the scenes has to approve things, I think. And then they're like, "Uh oh, we can't cause them liability. They'll sue us. You know, there's a lot of games going on here, but you sure can. You can look at data and comparison data from populations that are similar within states, you know, and where where exposure is known, you know how many years, you know where exposure, you know where blood work, you know where water levels or air, you know it all. They, no one will study us. We apply for these great studies with amazing academic partners. The academic partners are very experienced in Boston. They say, what, how could we have been denied? And I'm like, hmm, yeah, nobody is going to study where there's a community with an active polluter because this will show that these chemicals are very, very harmful at lower levels than acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the truth, you know, I, I've learned that. Yeah, and the EPA, I mean, that's the whole point of it. It's supposed to be the one to regulating this and providing the support. I mean, it is the National you know, Environmental Protection Agency. And I know states yeah. are captured by, you know, the politics in it, but I would have assumed the EPA would be on this, but I'm not surprised from what you've been they telling They are. Us. In two years, they have done more than anyone's done ever. And it seemed it's not enough. We're all impatient because for years we've been frustrated because we all know what we need on climate, on energy and all you know, and they are Michael Reagan. I can't say enough about him. I actually tweeted an invite to him a while back and he came to Merrimack and met with the water commissioners and everybody. And they're like, wow, how did he, who set this up or federal representation? And I go, nah, basically he called up representative Pappas and he's like, who is this woman? You know? And they're like, oh, you should come out here. She's right. It's kind of fun. Twitter is fun. <laughs> I agree. It's how I found you. So, um, Serene, why don't you tell us how people can find the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. Yeah, just look it up. Look it up on your phone, National PFAS Contamination Coalition. You will find it. It'll say about us. There's a letter in there that was presented to the Biden administration with what our asks are. Um, we're ongoing you know, meeting. We have a leadership team and a grassroots team. These monthly informationals are there. There's a lot of good links on the site. My Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, there's a website there. You know, for more information, people can reach out to me and find me easily on there if they want to know more, you know, about what they can do. But the national group and your local groups, you know, look it up and see if you have a local group and what's going on and what they're doing or who's in your state that may not be in your town because there are there's great work going on, you know, across the nation. And it's really, really important to do that, because if we don't, the only voices that are heard are the people trying to tell everybody that it's perfectly fine. This really isn't such a problem. The problem is solved. We need to educate ourselves, arm ourselves with education, and spend a heck of a lot of time speaking wherever we can. It's it's really important. And educating your elected officials. Don't assume just because you love your representation, or maybe you don't, that they know everything to know on this topic. They're very glad for documentation and, and more information to be given with them at least in this neck of the woods. 
right, well, thank you for that. And I guess I think we're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Laureen Allen. She's the founder of Merrimack Citizens for Clean Water, as well as the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. She's a social worker and an environmental organizer out in Merrimack, New Hampshire, where she and her neighbors have been dealing with PFAS contamination from the St. Gobain facility in Merrimack. So thank you so much for joining us, Laureen. Thank you. And you have been listening to Panorama. You can listen to it Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. on WHMP 101.5. Thanks for joining us.